Hey, y'all, good morning. Uh, if you can't tell, we're beginning Advent this week um, as we finish the book of Revelation. So the next four weeks will be uh, Revelation Advent, or as we are affectionately calling it, Radvent. Um, if you haven't picked up on it yet, uh, Revelation is an Advent book. The word Advent means arrival or coming, uh, namely the coming of Jesus. And the whole book of Revelation is about the arrival, the coming, the Advent of Jesus to set all things right, to bring about his gracious kingdom in full, to defeat sin and death and evil. Now, we typically think of Advent in, in terms of Jesus' first coming, his incarnation, his virgin birth. Uh, and it's cer certainly appropriate to do so as we approach Christmas, where we celebrate that. But Advent, that word, uh, comes from the Greek New Testament parousia and refers to his second coming. So Radvent, Revelation Advent, is actually very appropriate uh, as we prepare, as we anticipate uh, the coming of our Lord again. See, each Christmas, we don't just pretend and go back and say, well, what would it have been like if we were first century Jews waiting for the Advent of our Lord? We are a people in waiting. We are anticipating the advent of Jesus. We're waiting for him to return to bring about the restoration of all things. So the next four weeks, as we lean into advent, we will be leaning in to the end of Revelation, which portray for us the advent of Jesus when he comes again. So as we look back in joy and worship and celebration at the first advent, we necessarily are anticipating the second one the fullness of that joy and celebration and worship. We are waiting, waiting. That is a fundamental identity of the people of God. We're waiting on the advent of our Lord. So this morning we're in Revelation 19, where we are waiting on the wedding feast. Is anyone in here engaged? I have some hands, anyone? Oh, a few people, okay. Uh, ben and Leah. What is it like for you to wait for your wedding day? You've been waiting a while. Give me, give me a word. Give me a sentence. What's it like to wait for your wedding day? Uh, it's amazing because we're like a week away, so I think we're very excited. Yeah. Ow. Very excited. Okay. Would it be okay if I told you, like, hey, we're just going to have to push it back another six months? Okay. Wouldn't enjoy that. Well, we'll talk after, but um, no. Uh, Gabby and Reagan, what are you most excited about for marriage? If anything. <laughs> the companionship. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, uh, when I asked if anyone here is engaged, if you are in Christ, you should have raised your hand. Is that lame? Okay. Uh, you are engaged. You are betrothed as the bride of Christ. And that's what we're going to be spending time in this morning. Who's reading our scripture reading? Oh, the engaged man himself. <laughs> yes. Okay. So as he's coming up, we are in Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is the, uh, the coming, the arrival of what has been anticipated of Jesus being with his bride forever. That's the passage we're in this morning. This is a not yet we're seeing this vision of something to come. This for us, when we read this, this is like the Old Testament people of God reading messianic prophecies. This is that vision of that which they're longing for, of that which they're waiting for. This glimpse of hope. 
of what we are waiting for. So let's read of the advent of our Lord, the advent of Jesus coming to take his bride. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke for her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we need your help this morning. We don't even know just the sheer magnificence of what we've just read. So would you help us see it? Would you open our eyes to behold um, this wedding feast that you've prepared for us. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so for us to understand what this climactic moment of the advent of the wedding supper of the Lamb is, we have to understand how first century Jewish engagement and weddings worked. Like what John and the original hearers would have thought and been captivated by as they arrive at this wedding feast. In first century Judaism, there's three stages of being married. There is engagement, or what is called betrothal, right? In the, the gospel reading from Matthew, it says that Joseph was betrothed to Mary. That, that means they're engaged. So there's betrothal, there's preparation, and then there's the wedding feast, the wedding supper. So first is engagement. The groom would travel with his best man to the bride's house, to the father of the bride, and the groom and the father of the bride would settle on arrangements, including a purchase price. That was the custom in that day, that there would be a price paid to the bride's family for the marriage. Now, that's very important. Hold on to that, because it speaks to why uh, Scripture speaks of us as being purchased by God, or as Paul says, you were bought with a price. Right? That was the custom in those days. After they settled on, it, on many arrangements, one of, uh, one of which included the purchase price, the bride and the groom would then enter into a covenant. And what would be pronounced over them would be the betrothal benediction. So they would take a cup of wine, they would both drink it, and that would seal their engagement. And then the betrothal benediction would be pronounced over them. And this is how the betrothal benediction went. This is a new covenant. That was the benediction. 
So now at this point, they are legally married. They haven't been united together in sex. They aren't living together yet, but they are legally married. If one of them were to die at this point, the other one would be considered a widow. That's why when, uh, in, in the reading, it says Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly. They're just engaged, but there's legally it would be a divorce. So that's what's happening. So there's betrothal. And then after this, the groom would return to his father's house for 12 months, for a full year. And he would prepare a place for her in his father's house. And during which the bride would prepare for the wedding. But he would go, he would leave, and he would prepare a room in his father's house for he and his bride. Do you hear this language? This is all customary first century Jewish wedding language. But for us, it resounds as the words of Jesus. You were bought with a price. This is a new covenant. I will go and prepare a room for you. Just hold on to that. We're going to come back to it. So the groom would go. He'd go for 12 months. He'd prepare a place for him and his bride. And at the end of this preparation period, the groom would dress in his wedding garments. He'd he'd get dressed for the wedding. He and his best man and all his friends would travel back to the bride's house and generally, everyone knew when the groom was, was going to arrive, but no one knew the exact time. And so there was always this element of surprise. They'd often show up at midnight and call out, oh, bride, come out, come out, your groom is here. And she, with all her bridesmaids, would, would come, and they would travel back to the groom's house, and the wedding feast would start for usually a week or two weeks. I'll be hiding from my daughters that a biblical wedding is a week or two weeks. Um, but that's how it went. So imagine with me what it's like for John. This is his wedding customs. This is the the world he lives in and the original readers of this to hear and see this vision, right? Beginning in verse six. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Right, all this wedding language, this customary wedding language is a bit foreign to us, but we recognize as Jesus' words, John was there for them when Jesus originally said them, and they are not foreign to him. And he was not only there, but he is the immediate hearer, the immediate recipient of these precious promises that Jesus has made in these wedding vows, right? John is there when Jesus tells the parable in Matthew 22 that the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast that a king threw for his son. He was there at the Last Supper when Jesus proclaims the betrothal benediction, this is the new covenant. And he seals his engagement to us with the wine, which is his blood, the purchase price for us. He's there. He records it in his own gospel account in John 14 when Jesus says to the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am going, you may be also. That take you to myself is explicit wedding language. That's for us like hearing in sickness and health till death do us part. That is wedding vows that Jesus is making. It says again in the Matthew passage that Joseph took his wife. That's wedding language. That's what Jesus is talking about. 
So all of this, all of this wedding language that John has heard his whole life, having been an intimate friend and disciple of Jesus for three years, hearing these precious promises and wedding vows, Jesus' promise that he will return, he will come again to get his bride, but now it's 60 years after Jesus has died, after he's been crucified and resurrected and ascended. John's now in his 80s or 90s, abandoned, imprisoned on a desert island to die, longing for Jesus to return. And what he hears is, what he beholds is, hallelujah, the wedding of the lamb has come. That's Advent. That's what we are meant to anticipate. One commentator notes that the angel's words to John immediately following this Uh, these are the true words of God, are almost like a preemptive assurance to John of what his first thought must have been, which is, this is too good to be true. This is too good to be true. No, the angel says, before you can even say that, these are the true words of God. Is that not our first thought as well? That this this is too good to be true? Right, there's almost this tendency to want to pull back a little bit from this this kind of intimacy, to not get too close, to put an arm between me and this, this intimacy that God's saying, somehow he is our husband, he has made a wedding for us. Like it's too good to be true, or, or maybe it's better to say, it's true, it's true in my head, but I'm going to keep a safe distance from the reality of that, because it's just too much to bear because I'm not sure I can bear the weight of the reality that the God of the universe, the eternal transcendent God, longs to be with me, to be my husband, and to be intimate with me. The one who knows every thought and intention and desire and shame and fear and longing, he wants to be intimately known by and to intimately know me like a husband and a wife. Spiritually, physically, relationally, fully known, and fully seen. Like, I've got to pull away a little bit from that. Because even if I believe in my head that that's true, I have the experience of shame and nakedness and feel deeply unworthy for that kind of love and intimacy. And so I don't want to be fully known and fully seen by anyone, even my spouse. Not fully. I don't want to be fully exposed. And especially not by God. It's too good to be true, and if it's true, I'm not good enough to bear the weight of it. I'm not good enough to bear the weight of that kind of intimacy because I have an intimacy disorder. I have disordered intimacy. It's hard for me to be intimate. It's hard for me to look at Scott, look him in the eyes, be fully present with him, and tell him just how much I love him, just how much he means to me, just how much I want to spend time with him. That's hard. That's really hard to do. And if I can do some kind of lesser version of that, I'll cut it with humor. So I don't have to feel the full weight of that kind of intimacy. And I hate to break it to you, but I'm not the only one with this intimacy disorder. You have it too. It's the human condition. If you gathered with family this Thanksgiving, you probably saw disordered intimacy on display, very up close and personal. Right? My intimacy disorder causes me to pull away from that reality, 
that God loves me. He wants to be my husband. He wants to be intimate with me. And yet, simultaneously, deep down at the same time, like I want, we want, we have this innate sense for that, that the world and history and life and my life must contain the fabric of that kind of too-good-to-be-true story and intimacy, don't we? Like that's what we want. We know we want that. That's what we reach for and dream for and lean into the too-good-to-be-true movies and stories and books. That's all the best ones are too good to be true. That's how we create stories. This weekend, I made Megan watch uh, National Treasure with me. Some of y'all are like, wow, all that buildup, and he's reaching for National Treasure. I am, okay, and I'm standing by it. Um, I'm just going to believe it's safe to assume everyone's seen it because it's on cable TV every other night year-round. But uh, the premise of that world-class film is um, that there is this intricately designed and planned history and uncovering and adventure for centuries and millennia passed down through our documents and landmarks and history, legends told from forefathers to forefathers to fathers that I'm finding myself in the midst of the discovering of. Now, that's not just like, yeah, that's a cool concept for a movie. Like, it speaks to something deep, deep within me, albeit a funny movie. It speaks to something deep within me that wants history to not just be a random series of wars and victors, and the same for my life, but that it matters, and I matter. That there is something designed and intricately planned unfolding that has a finish, has a conclusion. And the same would be true of romance movies, of great romance movies, that I have this innate sense of the -the over-the-top drama of wanting to be in that kind of love, of wanting to find myself at the end of one of those films being the object of love, or superhero movies, or any other sort of movies that are grand. I, I have this innate sense that I want that. That's what my heart presses into. And what Revelation 19 is showing us is that all of that deep longing, despite my disordered intimacy, all of that deep longing is not a conspiracy theory. It's not a dashed hope. It's not a fairy tale. All of that longing that I can't even really put words to, but I just know it when I get a glimpse of feeling it, it's all real. It's all true. And here, Revelation 19 is the beginning of that final scene, of the conclusion, of the finish of that, of the feast of all feasts of wedding day, that all of human history is really a love story. It's really this grand drama of a bride and a groom. That even weddings themselves exist. They were created to point to this grand love story, this grand wedding between God and his people. That the entirety of human history is intricately unfolding, designed, and planned for the groom himself to step into history in his incarnation and first advent to pay the purchase price for his bride, to prepare a place and to come again and take his bride and begin the wedding feast of eternity. Would you dare to believe that, that that's true? That that's the whole point of human history? Is that it's a love story between God and you? That he wants to be intimate with us? That results in this heavenly choir of multitude from every tongue and tribe and and language resounding hallelujah? Hallelujah. 
let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Would you believe that? Would you believe that you are more deeply loved and known and seen than you could ever dare dream? And in your shame, even dare to want? That you have been bought, you have been purchased with the most extravagant and expensive and costly purchase price for a wedding ever. That your groom is your God who made you, who stepped into the world 2,000 Christmases ago and is coming again. He is preparing a place for you in his Father's house. That your wedding day is coming soon, as soon as Ben and Leah's. But for them, maybe they don't want it before. (laughs) See, in Jesus, whether you're single or married or widowed, you really are. You're married to Jesus. And that's not a consolation prize. That's not like a a trifly little pithy statement to throw out. That's the real thing. Human marriage is just this glimpse of that real thing. The real thing, the true thing is eternal. It's eternity long. Human marriage is just a preview. It's just a trailer to that. And human marriages grind to a devastating halt when husbands and wives try to fill their marriage, try to fill all of those longings into their marriage, they crumble. Those unsearchably deep longings of our heart could never fit into such a glimpse because they're eternal. They're made for eternity. Good marriages are the ones that know their limits and know that they exist to display that kind of eternal love found only in Jesus. There's a reason why Paul says he wishes all could be single, like him. Because there's this intimacy, there's what Paul calls an undivided devotion that just simply exists in singleness in this life that can't exist in marriage, in human marriage. This undivided devotion, this undivided intimacy. And too often the church has implied that singleness is the lesser option when scripture gives no hint of that, and if anything, gives the opposite with that undivided intimacy. And when we do that, we actually lessen marriage because we've failed to point to what it actually exists, which is that the bride of Christ is married to Jesus. The truest, most ultimate eternal reality is that there will be no human marriage in heaven in eternity, nor will there be singleness because we all, whether in this life single or married, or widowed, whether male or female, will walk down the aisle of heaven as a bride to our husband, Jesus. That is the truest reality. We'll be wed to him forever, fully known, fully seen, fully intimate, and fully loved by the one who made us, who treasured us, who purchased us, who has prepared a place for us, and is coming soon to take us to be with him and to start this wedding supper. That's what all of human history is bending toward in the universe. So, who is the bride? And how am I invited to this wedding, right? The angel says to John after this this grand scene, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the land, of the lamb, not the land. How am I invited? And who is this bride? So first, who's the bride? If you were here last week, 
you'll quickly notice that there is a sharp contrast between the prostitute, the harlot of Revelation 18, and the bride. Chapter 19 begins, our chapter begins with the destruction, the ending, the finishing of the prostitute, which is just this characterized imagery of the worldly systems of power and wealth and fame and status, which draw us in like spiritual adultery to run after other lovers. And so it it finishes that. That's what 19 begins, that God brings justice and then immediately turns to the bride. And we have verse seven, the marriage of the lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted to clothe, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, right? The prostitute was also adorned in fine linen, but the fine linen of the world, of worldly success, of worldly power, of worldly fame. Here the bride is decked out, is clothed, is adorned in purity, pure and bright, fine linen. And it says that this fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now this is really important. It might be tempting to read this in such a way as there's, there's those who are sinful, who are adultering, who are of this prostitute. And then over here, there's the bride who are good and clean, and I've, have, I've kept myself clean. And that there's sinners and righteous. That's not what this is saying. If we miss this, we miss the gospel, because that's not the gospel. That's not why Jesus advented 2,000 Christmases ago. He didn't come to give a thumbs up to good people and a thumbs down to bad people. He says, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. Look at verse two of our chapter with me. For God has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Now that last line is a little tricky to move from Greek to English, but what it's getting at, it it literally is avenged out of her hand. And what it's getting at is that those saints who have been redeemed had been affected, had been drawn in, had been allured and drawn by the spiritual adultery of this prostitute of the ways of the world. But God has avenged us, avenged them out of her hand. that we've been redeemed. In other words, we have chased after the fine linen of the world and the wealth and status and fame, like spiritual adultery. We have not kept ourselves pure, but we have been bought. We have been purchased and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The wedding feast of the lamb will be full of prostitutes and sinners and adulterers like us who've been washed in the blood of Jesus, who have been paid for. It's one of the main ways scripture speaks of our sin is a spiritual adultery. That sin is not just this mere like, that's bad, arbitrary reason. It is this spiritual adultery because this is the true story that God is our husband, but we have run after other lovers time and time again, like adultery. We've forsaken our marriage covenant. The whole book of Hosea is this mysterious book about how God marries a prostitute. And it's talking about us, that we are the one who has run after another lover. 
And that's why in verse eight, speaking of the bride, it says, it was granted her to clothe herself. God has seen our nakedness and shame, just like in the garden with Adam and Eve. He sees the nakedness and shame and he covers, he clothes. He covers our shame and nakedness. He washes our sin-stained clothes by the blood of the lamb to make us pure. And he adorns us in this wedding attire that we could never earn or deserve. He sees our nakedness, our shame, our adultery, our hiding, and he says, mine. That's mine. My bride, my beloved, the one whom I purchased, whom I love, that I'm redeeming, that I'm coming back for. I will adorn her and I will marry her forever because of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's what's going on here. That is the story of human history. That's the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And the reason it speaks of both the bride being granted to clothe herself and it says the bride has made herself ready is because God's love transforms us. He doesn't merely take an unfaithful bride in us. He takes us and he turns us from a faithless one into a faithful one. By his love and intimacy, he changes us, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done. It's his love and intimacy where we experience transformation. And that speaks both against the, I can do whatever I want because in the end I'm going to get grace, and the I've got to prove, I've got to do. It speaks against both of those. To the, I can do whatever I want because grace. No, if you've experienced the true intimacy and love of God, you will be transformed. He will actually start to turn us into one who runs after the lover we were made for from the beginning, we were meant for. That doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean we'll never run after other lovers, but it actually, his love begins to move us toward him to run after the husband that we were created for. So we will be changed. And it speaks against the duty of legalism because it's love, it's intimacy that transforms us, not duty. Duty does not transform, intimacy does. But because of my intimacy disorder, I'm, I'm tempted, I'm drawn, I lean toward doing this kind of duty toward God, this kind of legalism. I'm kind of bent toward that, almost like a, like a father visiting his college-age daughter in college, and he shows up and he fixes things, he tinkers around her dorm, he takes her out to dinner and pays for it, and never once asks her how she's doing, who her friends are, what her fears are, what her hopes are. He doesn't know her at all because he likely has an intimacy disorder, but he does stuff to try to pretend like he does. And we, because of our intimacy disorder, are bent toward doing that with God. Well, I'm too afraid to be intimate, but I'm gonna just kind of come to church more and go to small group more and, and do better. That's what we are bent toward because of our intimacy disorder keeping us away from intimately knowing him. That's what it is to know God. It's to be intimate with him, to experience the intimacy of a, of a marriage, 
and to experience that intimacy from total and whole acceptance. From total assurance that nothing I did got me to this intimacy in love and nothing I can do can get me out of it. I can't mess this up and get kicked out like God's gonna divorce me. He has said, you are mine. You are my bride. And so we get to be intimate with our Lord and experience that transformation more and more until the day we walk down the aisle and we see our husband and we'll be made like him, free to sin no more, free to no more run after other lovers. That's who this bride is. It's the one who Jesus loves, the one who Jesus has adorned, has clothed, has covered. And that leads to the final part of this wedding scene is the invitation. The angel says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the end of this too-good-to-be-true scene. And it's this turn from this corporate collective view of salvation that we, the people of God, make up Jesus' one singular bride. He has one bride. It's God's people from all times and all places to this kind of individual view of salvation that both are true. And it's saying there's individual invites to this wedding supper, personal ones. And what it's leading, what this is coming from is directly from Jesus' parable in Matthew 22 about where he, where he says the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast that a king threw for his son. And he tells of this king who, who goes out, he has made everything ready. He says he, everything is prepared. I've slaughtered the fattened calf. And he sends his servants to go tell those who are invited. The feast has, is starting, come. But he says, Jesus says in that parable that many paid no attention to it. They were too busy dealing with their farms and businesses and families. And then they even, some of them even killed the servants, the messengers who were just announcing the wedding invite. And so what Jesus says in that parable is, one, the king brings justice. That's what we saw last chapter. That's what we've seen all throughout. That he brings justice to those who have murdered his servants. But then two, the king tells his other servants, go and find anyone you can. Go and find everyone. Go to the streets and invite anyone and everyone you can find to this wedding. This is the best part. Both bad and good. Find anyone you can, both bad and good. The wedding hall is filled with guests, both bad and good, both rich and poor, both business owner and servant, not by virtue of the one receiving the invite, but only by virtue of the one extending the wedding invite of the king. That by the world standards, everyone, there is every kind of person at this wedding feast. Anything and everything anyone could have ever done will be at this feast. That's the kind of wedding our God is throwing. And so the question that it remains with us is have you RSVP'd to this wedding? Like if you're here today, you're hearing the invite. The invite is here. And this is either all true or it's nothing, but there's no in between. This grand love story between God and his people with Jesus as our groom is either all true or it's nothing. There can't be Jesus is claiming this extravagant, insane love story with him at the center. He cannot just be a good teacher. He is either absolutely insane or this is all true. 
You've got to take it or leave it. You've got to believe it or not, but there's no in between. And what we believe here is that God is inviting us to the most extravagant, expensive, lavish wedding you could ever imagine. Some of you think, oh, you wouldn't believe the weddings I've been to. They pale in comparison. But that's not what makes the wedding great. What makes the wedding great is that the guests who are invited show up only to be the bride, walking down the aisle to the perfect, most beautiful husband in Jesus. And so the question we all personally have to reckon with is, have I RSVP'd? Or have I paid little attention? Have I gotten busy with work and my farm and my career and my family? Have I used that as a arm to not be intimate with Jesus, to hide from that kind of intimacy? And for those of us who do know that intimacy, who are engaged to our Lord, would you remember that wedding day is almost here? It's coming. It's very soon. The advent of our husband is near, and he's coming to get us and bring us to this feast. Would you remember that? And one of the main ways we remember that is by worshiping. This ends, this whole scene ends with John falling down before the angel. He, he's seen such an incredible sight that he can't even help but just worship. And now it needs to be redirected a little bit, but that's, it's just the response is to worship. In this chapter, we have four hallelujahs. Do you know where else in the New Testament we find hallelujah? Nowhere. Only Revelation 19. And we get it four times because this is it. This is what the entirety of human history has been bending toward, and it's finally here. And we have this resounding, heavenly, angelic choir saying hallelujah. The wedding of the, of the Lamb has come. It is truly too good to be true, but it is. And the bride must worship. So that's what we're going to do in this Advent season. We're going to wait. We're going to worship as we await our husband, our Jesus, to come. Hallelujah. Let us exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Let's pray. Lord, I don't need to tell you because you know that I have an intimacy disorder. We have disordered intimacies, and that leads us to wanting to put an arm between us and you. And so we ask that you would break down those barriers, that you would show us just how loved we are in Jesus, that there's nothing we could do to lose that from you, and that you want to know us deeply. Would you help us believe that? Would you help us behold it? Would you help us step into that intimacy with you? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray all these things in your name, amen.